This is At the Table. I'm Jared Rizzi. I am so glad to be here with you all tonight, having a, a moment where we talk about civics and try to have a political conversation that doesn't make us all feel miserable at the end of it. Because one thing, and I'll do a, a longer version of this when I don't have intelligent, talented people waiting on the other side of this table to have a conversation with me, is I, I desperately want to have a conversation that's less angry, that's mm. more productive, mm where we hold a little bit of ourselves at the end of the day together and we don't fall apart every day because we're miserable with the news. That, to me, is crucial because the people who benefit from us being exhausted or angry are the people who want the status quo to remain in place. That's right. And that has to end. It has to end. And so anger is fine up to a point, but we cannot let us consume us. So, um, and And... We are here at Local 16, uh, we, uh, and we've been doing this on a regular basis, uh, hopefully weekly. Um, we're going to be here both tonight, which is the Tuesday night debates, and tomorrow night, the Wednesday night debates from Detroit. They are going to be on the screen behind me. If you are in Washington, D.C., please come down to Local 16. Uh, apparently, there's a very good Frosé special. <laughs> Again, a lot of... Wow. Lot of, lot of, lot of audience reaction to the Frosé. Um, oh, because of and to the Frosé. So again, I'm Jared Rizzi. This is At the Table. Joining me tonight, two guests who uh, have given a little bit of their time and sitting at the, the gingham with me is uh, Chris Melody Fields. She's the executive director of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, BISC, and Anam Rahman, who's a professor, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Law. She's an immigration attorney, and she's also a board member at the Asylum Seeker Assistance Project Anam, thank you for joining me here tonight for At the Table. Chris, thank you for joining me here at the thank table. You. Thank you both for joining. This is such a good conversation, and I cannot wait to have it. Thank you both. Absolutely. You forgot to add two badass women of color. That's well, yeah. And that gets to and that gets to another point, which is that <laughs> politics podcasts are too white, too straight, too male, and I'm pushing back against that. And because I am white, straight, and male, <laughs> and I would like to work again. Uh, I am I am making sure that this conversation is uh, as best representative of so many different parts of this country because, and we were going to get to this because it's the neat overlap of the Venn diagram of your two areas of expertise, we are desperately in a struggle right now of who is America, who becomes both at the ballot box or as citizens, who is allowed into our country, who's allowed to participate in our democracy. That is the crucial question. And Donald Trump has made that question front and center. Mm -hmm. I believe that it is going to be a losing battle for him in this election, mm -hmm. even though it worked well for him in the past. But we will see, and we will also see tonight the people who are coming up. But let me turn it over to the two badass women of color sitting across the table from me right now. Let me start with, let me start with you, Anam, because... Immigration, like I said, front and center because of Donald Trump. How is it different in this election cycle versus other election cycles? We have not seen this issue so prominently in previous cycles. Why and how? I mean, absolutely. It's because of what's been happening in the last couple of years. Uh, we can't escape all of the hateful rhetoric that our president espouses on a daily basis, whether it's from the Rose Garden or from his Twitter account at six in the morning when he's probably eating Big Macs. I'm not convinced. <laughs> I think it's, I actually think it's toilet time. time, actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not up to date on his I don't want to think about it, but yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. 
But it it brings that rhetoric front and center. Uh, Trump is not the only thing wrong with our country right now. He's a symptom of hate. Yep. And he gives a voice to that hate and to and so there's his rhetoric, but then on a more statutory, regulatory policy basis, every day almost as an immigration attorney, we are seeing an attack on immigrants, whether they're lawful immigrants, whether they're undocumented immigrants, or whether they're aspiring immigrants to the United States on the mm-hmm. other side of the border. So every day we have something new that we're fighting. Um, as someone mentioned recently, which I thought was a good analogy, is that being an immigration attorney these days is like being in the maze in the Goblet of Fire, mm. where there's just something new coming at you, yeah. and you're just trying to get to the Triwizard Cup, yep. which is asylum usually, uh, but then there's just something new. And mm-hmm. so when so much is going wrong in such little amount of time, people are talking about it, people care, the media is listening and reporting on it more and so it's in the forefront of everyone's mind so there that's why we all care now when in the past it hasn't really been at the forefront of our attention i don't want to ruin harry potter and the goblet of fire for people <laughs> it's been over 10 years so i feel like we can we can i don't need a spoiler alert tag for this but i mean you you remember the triwizard cup i mean that does not it doesn't end well for cedric diggory that's right yeah okay i just doesn't end well for a lot of people. Yeah, right. I'm just, I'm not saying you need a new metaphor. I'm just saying you're not giving me a lot of hope with your metaphor, which may be the situation we're in, frankly. Uh, Chris, let me turn to you for a second, because we've seen a lot of efforts to manage, not just as Anam was saying, the people that come into this country, but also the vote. A big push from some familiar faces from the last administration, mm-hmm. including Eric Holder, the yeah. former president, um, but also a lot of movement on the census question that will have a lot of outsized impact on who becomes uh, the voters to come. So what are you seeing uh, from your vantage point at BISC? Where is this conversation going, and what are you hopeful for uh, in the near future? What's what's your Triwizard Cup? Oh, man. Well, I, my daughter's here, and she's a huge Harry Potter fan, so I believe, I hope her ears perked up, and I think she was watching the TV, so probably not. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I ruined for her the ending. Oh, no. Of the she, she's, she's read Goblet of Fire. Okay. Um, she's, on bo- she's on book five. Okay. Um, so, you know, when Anand was talking, you know, I came to this country when I was three years old. Um the immigrant story is pretty much the story of the United States of America. Um, And, you know, what this conversation and what we've been seeing at ballot initiatives, um, through ballot initiatives, is, like, who really has a voice and who has a stake uh, to determine their future and determine, you know, what living in dignity and being able to thrive is. Um, And and those are very critical, important, um, you know, American values. Um, So, you know, we've had a lot of movement around the voting restoring the right to vote in Florida, Amendment 4. Um, it was a huge, monumental um, uh, initiative led by formerly incarcerated, and I think that's yeah. a story that needs to be told more and more, is many of these ballot initiatives are started from and 
and led by the people that are most impacted by the policy outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And that's certainly what we're trying uh, to do at the, uh, at the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. We think those that are closest to the pain are the closest to the solution. Um, so we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, the rights restoration, which was so phenomenal and historic in Florida. We saw a, a slew of voting rights um, uh, ballot initiatives in Michigan, as well as redistricting. In 2018, there were several uh, redistricting um, ballot initiatives that passed um, by the voters. And I think that fundamentally speaks to what a couple of things. One, people believe that having a voice is important and that our democracy is critical and they're going to do everything to fight to be a part of it. Uh, two, they see how the system is gamed. They saw it front and center in 2016 um, when you see uh, a person become president of the United States who lost the popular vote but won because of the electoral college and all of that is due to the, re the redistricting that's happened over um, uh, you know it's so, it's so it's so intertwined to, and people just don't think that's right they just don't think it's right for politicians to gain the system for their benefit our democracy is supposed to represent the people. Um, so we're continuing to see that. But we're also seeing people just see things that are not happening that are so fundamental to their lives happen. And they're using the ballot from minimum wage to expanding Medicaid to tackling the criminal justice system to tackling climate change. This is what the people want. And what is happening right now is our, our politicians are listening to the people who give them money and line their pocketbooks, and not the actual people that put them in the office in the first place. Let me, let me shift to, because both of you have mentioned things that have happened in the news recently, whether it's uh, the, the census uh, or ballot initiatives or immigration, and then I think about what's happened at the U.S. Supreme Court, mm. and as I'm looking across the table, mm -hmm. I know that that is actually dispositive in very different ways for the two areas of expertise for the two of you. So for ballot initiatives, not so great. Right. Um, for immigration, we've seen, I think, a mixed bag is probably charitable, but some really positive strides, particularly on the census question. Um, Anam, let me start with you. How do you feel going into 2020, into this election cycle, when people are looking at where things are, is it as... From, and again, from your background as an immigration attorney and as an educator, what is this momentum and where are we headed? Because these questions, I, I, the census question in particular, I was, I was surprised, I was glad but surprised at the Supreme Court's decision. So where does this leave you? Because you've got to be feeling that mixed bag, I would imagine, right in the chest. Right. So immigration law is interesting because we have a lot of administrative law principles as well to think about. So even a couple of the conservative justices who don't really seem to be, high, be behind Chevron deference, and I might be getting into the weeds a little bit. With no, I think it's important. Let's define that, though, for people who – I mean, because I think it's important that we make sure that people we, – we treat people like adults because we're asking them to vote, and there's nothing more important than that. But let's talk about what you're, what you're actually referencing because not everyone is an attorney. Although, for people who have taken the, taking the bar this week, you might find out – find out very soon that you are an attorney, and if so, congratulations. And if so, by the way, you join the ranks of uh, Rudy Giuliani, and if he can do it, anyone can. You can make it there. Uh, but let me let me stop, stop interrupting you and let you finish your answer. Sure. So I think uh, the starting point to that all, and I'll try and be as succinct as possible, but is that uh, the immigration courts 
are within the purview of the Department of Justice. So any case that we're fighting in immigration court, which is the vast majority of undocumented people who enter through the border, are applying for relief in front of a DOJ employee. Those cases go up to the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is also part of DOJ. Then if it gets appealed further up, it goes up to the Circuit Courts of Appeals, and then eventually to the Supreme Court if they decide to accept cert. So inherent in these cases are how much deference circuit courts should give to the agency that is charged with applying and interpreting immigration law. And that's where Chevron deference comes into play. Um, Chevron is a case from the Supreme Court saying that, hey, you know, this is what you do. We shouldn't always second guess you because you do this all the time and we don't do this all the time. So, you know, depending on whether the statute's clear, depending on whether this is ambiguous, we're going to give you a certain amount of deference. So a couple of the conservative justices who have been recently appointed, um, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, uh, have expressed a reluctance at Chevron deference. We as advocates don't like Chevron deference because we're usually fighting against an agency interpretation, so we want the least amount of deference given. We just want the courts to look at this de novo. We want them to look at it anew without really putting a thumb on the scale for whatever the Department of Justice has said because we think it's wrong. But they're not giving you what you want even though they're applying the principle that you would like. Exactly. So we just want it to be an I even hate when playing that happens. field. Right. <laughs> we want it to be an even playing field. Chevron deference usually doesn't do that. So I think it'll be interesting as far as what the Supreme Court does with certain cases. Um, I think as far as what I would like to see more generally, I think a lot of these candidates even are really just on their first day at least are going to undo what President Trump has done just recently, and I think they're all kind of on the same page about that. What I'm interested to see is which candidates can go further and have shown a more coherent, thoughtful immigration plan that doesn't just undo the bad that Trump has done in the past couple of years. And I want to get to what we're all here for tonight, which is, of course, the first night of this second round of Democratic primary debates for president here at Local 16. Uh, and, of course, in Detroit, where the debates are happening. By the way, this, for people who don't know, this is so much more interesting than when I was a White House reporter for seven years. You would basically be sitting in a filing room watching it on television. This is, I have a drink in my hand, and this is, this is far better than anything that we could have been doing. But we were talking about, and people are rowdier, frankly, and I, and I enjoy that. Um, I, I don't love it, but I enjoy it. Uh, I guess that's a complicated emotion. Um, Chris, let me go back to you, though, because we, I was talking about ways in which recent news has been mixed, and mm-hmm. I said, you know, for Anam and her work in immigration, it's been there's been a positive trend, although a mixed bag. I would say for you and what you've been dealing with at ballot initiatives, it's it's probably a little bit worse of a mixed bag. And I think especially when you, you mentioned, for example, Florida, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the re-disenfranchisement that's happening right now in that state, in a state that remains a critical battleground in this election, and you mentioned the Electoral College, we can talk about you know, why that exists to preserve the, the, you know, values of slaveholders everywhere. So, um, but, but tell me where we stand. The same question to Anna, but to you now, Chris. Where do we stand and what are you hopeful for about when you see these things happening and the, the trajectory doesn't look as positive? So one of the things that we saw this year, so we saw, like, really transformative ballot initiatives pass in 2018. This is the people that said, this is what we want, right? Right. I'm in Florida. 64% of Floridians said... 
formerly incarcerated people should have the right to an vote amazing restored. number. An amazing, you said 60. Uh, above, in, in, in the state of Florida, you have to have 60 or above to pass a ballot initiative. They went well, uh, well above that. What we're seeing in Florida, we've seen in Michigan, we've seen in Missouri, we've seen in all these states, as these initiatives have passed, the state legislatures are going back and undermining the actual will of the people. So Sometimes, you, by the way, and again, I'm sorry oh to no, interrupt, it's but fine. sometimes it's literally to prevent a democratically elected governor, for example, or, or state legislature, yeah. to have the power that they were voted into office to have. This is the level of obstruction that we're seeing. Absolutely, and I, I think that's a, a good reminder that... We have to be 20 steps ahead of our opposition because once we do things, they, they've already thought ahead of our, us, right? They've already thought about that. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I think is so fundamental for us to think about, we can't actually play by the same game that, and the rules of the same game because our opposition is completely changing the rules constantly. It doesn't even matter that a democratically elected governor is um, elected, you know, in North Carolina when uh, when that happened, they tried to take away the ability for him to appoint judges, uh, for the ability to put put people on the board of elections. They threw they went and put ballot initiatives uh, to, to, to undermine that, luckily we were able to stop those through the ballot. Um, but it, it's a reminder that it is so critically important for people to be continuously active in putting the pressure on uh, the people who are supposed to represent us in government. Um, we're, you know, with Florida, um, they they went to undermine and essentially have created more barriers for people who have who have the voters have said to have their right to, to vote restored. Um, basically, saying they have to um, pay off fees and fines. Um, it's basically, it's it's creating more debtors' prisons, too. And it feels, okay, and, and I know that this is a loaded term, but it feels like a poll tax. It feels like what we saw under Jim Crow or prior. This is not what we have had in the past. Do you expect, just on that particular yeah. question, do you expect legal challenges, and do you expect them to succeed? Uh, I know the people in Florida are friggin' hard fighters, and I know Desmond Mead, who has been fighting this for the last eight years, he is not going to stop because he knows this is fundamentally important to the people of Florida, to people like him. Uh, you know, uh, it, they're not going to stop fighting. And I don't think anyone, what you're seeing across the country is a level of activism that we haven't seen in a long time. It's just being, it's it's continuing, it's just building and building and building. Um, and I think, you know, we are, will continue to use the power of the ballot initiative to take these issues that are, are critical, but we also, we want our representatives to do their job. We want well, them to do that. that. We want difference. them to do that. We don't want to have to use this tool. Um, we want it to, to go through the legislative process. And it's a reminder to the candidates that will be on, on stage, you know, in a couple of minutes that you are here to represent the people, the will of the people, in that full stop. Well, and we've seen this president, for example, and his willingness to, uh, and, and in many ways because of the Electoral College, by the way, having the ability to say, I don't care about California cities or Baltimore or other places where he knows the Electoral College doesn't is never going to go his way. And so he can basically say, forget you guys, I'm not interested, and I don't represent those people. And in that vein, I want to go, before we get to the conversation about what's going to happen here tonight when we have these debates, and again, we're at Local 16, this is at the table, I'm joined by Chris Melody Fields, who's the Executive Director of BISC, 
and Anam Rahman, who's the uh, who's an immigration attorney and also an associate board member. And let me get the name of this organization correctly: the Asylum Seeker Assistance Project in the DMV area. Before we get to the exciting part about what these candidates represent and fundamentally where they fall on a spectrum, because we said about badass women of color. Tonight's the whitewash night where we have essentially an entire panel Mm -hmm. of, somebody cheer for whitewash? Uh, Have that person removed from the restaurant, by the way. Is that Shelly? Yeah, okay, well, you're fired. Um, Let me ask you an unpleasant question, which is how bad is it going to get from here on out? Because this is an unfortunate overlap of your two areas of expertise. We know that the president is willing to ratchet up the anti-immigration rhetoric. We know that Republicans have been willing to push back on these initiatives even when they face monumental public pressure. When you know that the opposition has no scruples, how do you brace yourselves for this election cycle? And, and, and not just for you two in your professional capacities, but as human beings, women of color, as people who are feeling this every day, how do we get forward and, and, and take these punches on the chin and walk ahead Anam, I'll start again with you because I am. I know this is a tough area on immigration, and I know that the stories you're hearing every day must be, frankly, agonizing to go through. There are not, there are not a lot of easy or fun stories, I imagine, in your line of work. Right. So, just to give a real quick highlight reel as to my last seven to ten days. <laughs> in that seven to ten days, the Trump administration has restricted eligibility for asylum seekers by saying that just by traveling through a third country, you're no longer eligible for Mm -hmm. asylum. The remain in Mexico. That was before. That's still happening. Seven to ten days. That was announced. He expanded expedited removal, which takes away the rights and due process of many people to appear before an immigration judge. To Already we're not having a lot of rights to begin with, and now those are being eviscerated as well. Absolutely. And... Then just yesterday, the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, certified a case to himself that eviscerated asylum law by saying that the family is no longer a protected ground or a particular social group to apply for asylum, which has been established through decades of precedent and jurisprudence. Explain that, because I I know what you're talking about, but because we, we... Legally, we recognize the family unit. Correct. And how does that work in terms of what you're talking about? Because for people who don't understand. So for asylum, you can't just show generalized violence to get asylum. You need to show that you have a well-founded fear, either because you've suffered past persecution or you fear future persecution, on account of a protected ground. A protected ground could be because of your race, your nationality, your religion, your political opinion, or your membership in a particular social group. Your membership in a particular social group is probably the most complicated and the most litigated, but also the most applied for asylum ground. And for a particular social group, you have to show that you're in a group of people that's immutable. It's not something you can change. It's particular. It's well-defined and clear, has clear boundaries. And it's socially distinct within the uh, society in question. The family has prototypically matched all three of those requirements, right? You can't change who's in your family. Everyone knows who's in your family. I mean, we try, don't we? But we can't, do <laughs> Yeah, always. but it's usually not successful. And uh, it's socially distinct. You know, families are treated differently because of their family, whether it's right. ownership or health care mm-hmm. or, you know, marriage. You know, you're treated differently because of your family. That's right. So, uh, and that's been well established both in the DOJ case law as well as by circuit courts of appeal. Attorney General Barr just certified a case to himself, said, I'm going to rewrite that whole thing. 
I'm going to say that wasn't right. It's never been right. Circuit courts have found otherwise. We're all wrong. And I'm just going to do this. And unfortunately, that's our binding precedent right now. So we're all scrambling. You know, these cases we've signed, expectations we've set with our clients, and we're just in this quicksand of law, which is constantly changing. Legal theories and evidence have to all be changed now to match this new legal standard that I believe will eventually be overturned, but it's going to be a long road back up to the Fourth Circuit where we are to get some reasonable judges who are fairly independent to look at that case again. And this is just the last seven to ten seven days? Seven to ten days. So that doesn't sound... Okay, well, I asked a question about how bad is it going to get. That's not good. Uh, Chris, uh, let's, let's turn it to you. Um, what, can you polish this at all? So I want to be clear. People of color live in fear every day. This isn't anything new. This is an exasperated version of what we live with in our daily lives. I mean, my mom is a U.S. citizen, and I just saw her this weekend, and she's like, am I going to have to go back? Like, actually ask me this question. Like, if he wins again, am I going to have to go back to Venezuela, which, if you've been following the news, is not a country that is safe to go back to. Like, that is the life of people of color every single day. So is it going to get worse? Probably, but what I have known as a student of history is every great change that has ever happened in this country has been similar moments like this. Let's not forget that we put Japanese people in internment camps, that we enslaved African Americans. Like, this is the history of this country. It has been a fight for the moral, our morality, for a long time. Um, what I do believe is that people are rising. And for, like, what gives me purpose and why I do this work is my child and my daughter and my people, right? I know that we are resilient. And what I am doing and the work that we're all doing is to make sure that we all fundamentally are free. And I know that my liberation is tied to your liberation, is tied to your liberation. I'm not asking for anything that isn't, shouldn't be made available to anyone else uh, in this country. So, you know, yes, this rhetoric is going to continue, but what gives me hope, what gives me to know that we're going to come out on the other end of this is we, we have throughout history. And I think what is going to happen is we are, we're going to come out stronger and we actually are, are going to move further toward the path of what this country is supposed to represent was supposed to uh, represent of, you know, all people being free. Um, so let's yeah. talk about the people who are, yeah, a lot of people who are very excited about that idea. Um, let's talk about what we're expecting to see on the debate stage tonight, because there, there will be different articulations of that principle that you were just describing, and they will be discussing many of the issues that both of you care about. What are you expecting, Chris? I'm gonna, I've been starting with um, and I'm gonna, uh, I'm, I'm gonna start with you instead tonight, uh, for this one. What are you expecting on a number of ballot initiatives? These are obviously they can get very granular, yeah. and I imagine maybe not expecting a lot of specifics. And isn't that uh, the grist for all of our mill to, to be upset about uh, on these uh, debate nights where everyone gets a 30-second answer? But what are you expecting tonight, and who are you looking for? You know, we've got uh, tonight, it's uh, from left to right uh, in terms of debate position, mm -hmm. not in terms of politics. Williamson, Ryan, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Sanders, Warren, O'Rourke, Hickenlooper, Delaney, and Bullock. Uh, what do you think? What are you, what are you looking for tonight? 
Well, thinking of two of the front runners that are in the debate tonight with uh, Warren and um, Senator Sanders, I think economic is going to be a huge conver- the economy is going to be a huge conversation. There's going to be, I think, a, a lot of brown Medicaid expansion around uh, the minimum wage. I, 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 I suspect that will be a huge uh, part of the discussion. You know, to to. To immigration, I really hope it's a really expansive conversation. Um, it is not just a Latinx issue, and Latinx people do not only ca- just care about immigration. Um, <laughs> we care about, oh, I know, I know. We have multiple issues. We are not a monolith. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. Um, but... You know, I, I imagine that the economy is going to be a huge part of the conversation. I imagine with Hickenlooper, um, you know, and, and others, you know, maybe uh, climate change will come up as part of the conversation. Um, but, I mean, it, it'll be very interesting to see how people are going to start, continue to start to distinguish them, themselves. Yes, because last time it was very much... Yes, and. It was an improv show. It was, yeah, I think that you're really good, yep. and my little distinction is this. But it wasn't a lot of depth there. Absolutely. And I think that's really what is going to have to happen for the continu- the, 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 the debates moving forward is people need to understand, not necessarily, I mean, people really do want to know how you are going to do things. Like, they do they do want to understand that, and they want to understand the dis- distinction because there's a whole lot of choices in front of people. Um, and this is only half of them? And this is only <laughs> half of them. I'm curious as to how the conversation around race is going to come up in an all... With all white candidates, and I think it's an important conversation because as a person of color, it is not only on me to have this conversation. So I actually would love to see how uh, an all-white candidate debate tackles the issue of race. Uh, I, I think that's a that's a fantastic question. I really hope that there is some addressing it. Obviously, there's been a, some reticence among the candidates to take uh, Trump head-on. We've actually seen the person who is going to be at the center of the stage tomorrow night, the former Vice President Joe Biden, has been the one who's been most willing to say Trump's name to address him, but not to great effect. So we'll see. Uh, Anam, let me go back to you. Immigration, as we've been saying, front and center on this issue. Uh, what are you expecting in terms of the candidates, both tonight and tomorrow night, frankly, since I know that we don't get to have this conversation with you again tomorrow night? What are you expecting to hear, and what are you looking for from the people who are going to be on the stage? So I haven't seen too much variation among Democratic candidates as far as their immigration platforms. I think all of them are praying staying relatively safe as far as what they're willing to say. It's early, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and I think it's kind of like, a, what are other people doing? Should I do that too? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it going to look bad if I don't support that as well? I think that happened with Julian Castro yep. at the last uh, debate when he mentioned repealing 1325. <laughs> yep. So um, I think I'll be interested to see what discussion that spurs and to see who really knows what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because to, uh, to an immigration practitioner, you know, we know who's bullshitting <laughs> and who's not. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think, and I've looked at some of the platforms, I think there is a lot of flowery, expansive language about what we should do. Like, let's reform the immigration system. Great. I think we can all agree it's broken. I think <laughs> Republicans can agree that yeah. it's broken. Well, they can in behind closed doors. Right. And then when it comes to the vote, right. they're nowhere. It's perfectly fine. Right. So, but I, I, I think that we all know some reform is needed, but reform can be value neutral. It can be great. It can be bad. It can be value neutral. 
But we need to fix the right Stephen thing. Miller's choices for immigration reform would not, let's reduce legal immigration, yeah. let's make immigration let's whiter. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, that's, that's reform. That's, that is reform. That is different, um, but not necessarily. Well, let me get to a point that I think you're alluding to, but I want to make sure we get to before the actual debate starts. And again, we're here at Local 16. I'm Jared Rizzi, and this is a conversation called At the Table, a new podcast uh, that we've been putting together. And uh, these conversations will be a regular feature at Local 16. We're so glad for them welcoming us. And if you're here in the room and you're wondering who the hell are those people, that's who the hell those people are. And thank you. Thank you, two of you. Um, and, if, uh, and, and, if, and we're going to have some post-analysis as well. So thank you again for sticking through that. And I will uh, remind people during the commercial breaks that that's coming. But, you know, I'll be mostly out of your hair and letting you do this. My last question for the both of you tonight We've got the two, Warren and Sanders, who are, to many people's estimation, the leftward flank of both nights of this debate. Whether or not that's accurate or uh, whether or not that's left on an absolute, uh, reasonable left-right spectrum, we can have a separate conversation about how what's left in the United States is basically center-right in most of the rest of the world. That's fine. There's a lot of credit for those two candidates and the, the Democratic field writ large for moving us leftward, moving us more progressive on a lot of issues. Who gets that credit? And more importantly, how do we see that Overton window shifting on immigration but also on other initiatives? Chris, I know you've been mentioning some of these ballot initiatives that are unthinkable. I think about, for example, marijuana or yep. other things, gay marriage. Uh, these things were not in the public conversation. So tell me about where this conversation is, who's moving the window, and uh, and what do you think, uh, who should get credit for that? Because a lot of people want to credit Sanders, for example, for having pushed so much to the left in 2016, and now here we are in 2020 where most of those things are mainstream. I do think Senator Sanders has been very important, but I, I want to actually give credit to the American people. How? Oh, come on! Uh, come on. What, are you, what are you running for? Why? This is why. <laughs> Since 2016, we have seen fun, like really progressive ballot initiatives pass. Really, really progressive things about uh, issues like legalization of marijuana. I don't think we're doing enough when we talk about criminalization and that they are still making money off of the bodies of black and brown people. Um, you know, we, we've seen that with, through voting rights. We've seen that through redistricting. We're seeing that through the raising the minimum wage. We're seeing that through tackling um, mass incarceration. Like, the people are voting on these issues in, like, huge amount of numbers. They are setting the tone. At the same time that Trump won in 2016 in Arizona, they were raising the minimum wage. And this was happening in 2018, too, these issues. So these are actually the issues that the people care about. And it is a, behooves all of these candidates to continue to talk about these issues because it's all, all people, like all, rather, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, they're winning on these issues. Um, so, I mean, yes, um, I think Warren and, and Sanders have certainly elevated the conversation. I think the 2018 election elevated a lot of these issues. I think there's a lot um, to talk about this freshman class in, in Congress, how they have elevated these issues. Yeah. Um, and this is what the electorate this was the mandate from the electorate in 2018. This is this is what they uh, they want. Whether you know when they get to the voting booth is is another story. Um, but I I think it would actually be a losing 
these can't these this is a losing proposition for these candidates if they actually don't speak to these progressive issues that that the people are voting on uh, in record numbers. Anam, I know we're we're coming up against the start of the debate, so I want to pose this question to you because Chris mentioned, you know, essentially where the, the the electorate is for the Democratic side of this conversation, and for people who are. People want to give the president credit for saying he's choosing to have this fight on the battleground of immigration. Do you think, I don't think that's going to be a winner for him. Do you think it's going to be a winner for him? So I wouldn't say it's a conscious choice that he's making to have us have that discussion. But I do think that partial credit goes to him and his administration for breaking the system to such a degree that it has. And the inhumane and the callous and the arbitrary and capricious rulemaking that's come out of his uh, out of his administration has forced people to care it's forced us to move farther to the left you know abolish ice is not something that anyone talked about mm-hmm. before trump it's right. not you know like end family separation decriminalize entries at the border these are not things that people would ever talk about pre-trump and it's because he's just pushed us to that place that that's where we all are well chris earlier you mentioned that the closest to the pain is the closest to the solution so maybe we are close to the solution i want to thank the both of you for joining us tonight my name is jared rizzi and this conversation is at the table we have Anam Rahman, who's a professor at Georgetown Law, an adjunct at Georgetown Law, and an immigration attorney. She is also a board member at the Asylum Seekers Assistance Project. They do good work in the, in the DMV area, in the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. And, of course, Chris Fields, Chris Melody Fields, who's the executive director of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, BISC. Thank you both for your time, your expertise, your warmth, your, your hope as we move forward. Thank you both. Thank you. Right now. Thank you so much. That completes tonight's uh, debate. Um, let's let's start with tomorrow. you because there wasn't a lot on immigration tonight. In fact, I, I was disappointed with how little there was. What are your takeaways as someone who does this professionally, but also as someone who knows what to listen for? Before, when we started, you said you know when you hear their bullshit. What did you hear and was it bullshit? The debate tonight did well is that it did cover a wide breadth of issues. And I think CNN did a good job of that. And I think it relatively controlled the conversation and kept things fluid. And yeah. a lot of people got a word in. Uh, so I think on, on that level, it was a successful debate. Um, for my own biased opinion, <laughs> I am more interested in immigration. Yes, that's what I'm asking you for. <laughs> sure. I, I do agree with you that there wasn't as much on immigration. But then again, given the candidates that were on the stage tonight, I, I would expect we see more of that tomorrow night. So you might be missing me tomorrow night, but... There, we there were some moments, and, and I was compiling kind of a list, and I thought there were shout-out moments on tokenized diversity questions. And whether it was um, the HBCU shout-out from Elizabeth Warren, it was the uh, D.C. statehood shout-out from Mayor Pete, it was the um, you know, O'Rourke talking about the legacy of slavery and the Sheila Jackson-Lee bill... Marianne Williamson's 40 Acres in a Mule rant. I mean, just like, there were a few moments. They would have been infinitely changed, and I think drastically improved if we had had a person of color on the stage to kind of hold that moment accountable. There wasn't any of that. It was 10 white people on the stage talking about that, and that, I think there was a deficiency there. Let's, get, let's just go straight to your area of expertise, which is, of course, immigration. What did you hear, and was it sufficient to meet your standard of, of whether or not it was valuable? 
So I do think it was relatively one note tonight. I, I didn't really see a wide breadth of immigration discussion. Mostly about the southern border. It was mostly about reacting to Donald Trump's policy. Yes, and decriminalization of border crossing. Right. A, an issue that, if you remember from the first debate, which was four weeks ago, that divided somewhat the candidates. There was a show of hands question. It was stupid. But there was a little bit of discussion back and forth about that. But we got a little bit. I thought I thought we got a little bit further than that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, Buttigieg picked it off by saying that he would decriminalize, but he would kind of have a fraud exception based into it. I'm not really sure what that means. Um, you know, usually people who enter across the border aren't committing fraud. That's why they're entering from the border. Visa fraud usually occurs at airports. Well, and, and, and it's funny because this plays into, there was so much call out of Republican talking points tonight. This plays into the entire discussion about asylum, is, seeking asylum is legal. Correct. And, and the idea that you would have a discussion that, you know, and, and, and I thought that uh, Mayor Buttigieg was good about avoiding those talking points in some areas, but really bad about it. And we saw some real patronizing of those Republican talking points from him in other areas. I, I thought immigration uh, definitely was. I agree. And I actually think that the decriminalization conversation is taking up a lot of space right now in the immigration debate, especially among the Democratic candidates. I just think it's, at least it's my opinion, that it is a relatively small issue when we have bigger fish to fry when it comes to how broken the immigration system is. Do I think decriminalization is a good thing? Yes, because I just don't think it's a good use of our government's resources and our prosecutors, and we should really be going after the bad guys. And it did result in family separation. It was certainly used as a tool to separate parents from their children when the parents were being prosecuted in federal jails for illegal reentry, and the children obviously couldn't go to federal jails. Uh, so to that end, it is a bad policy, which has since been revoked by the Trump administration. But there are a lot of other things wrong with the immigration system that we should be focusing on and that the candidates should be talking about at these debates. Was there anything else that you heard tonight that either piqued your interest on immigration or maybe a red flag, a warning sign that these candidates are not ready for prime time on immigration? I think that, as you touched on, the diversity issue and the immigrant issue comes up in other topics. I know Bernie Sanders mentioned it uh, or was asked about it when he was talking about health care and education. Do we want to open right. the floodgates to undocumented people in the United States? Came up again when it came to taxes. And, right. and so I think it's always going to be there. I, I think it's an elephant in the room relatively, even with the immigration discussion being as big as it is with other topics. Um, but I, I really didn't seem, see too much. I mean, I was kind of surprised with CNN questions on incentivizing illegal immigration. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, I want to get to that, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that that was just an interesting way to frame the issue for them to be really coming back to that multiple times with multiple candidates. Um, because if you have been suffering 15 years of domestic violence and your husband rapes you every night and you go to the police and they don't do anything, then there's nothing that's going to de-incentivize you because you just want to save your life. And you want to save your children's lives. So I think there's a lot of discussion on, you know, do we, like, if people see that there's free education and people see there's free health care, is that going to bring them here? No, they're coming here because they're fleeing for their lives. And if they stay in their countries, they will die. Right. And let's not also, I mean, we don't have time to get into this, but let's also acknowledge the American role in creating some of these trouble spots around the globe, especially 
in the Western Hemisphere where we've exacerbated or initiated problems with governments that just aren't working as well as they might be otherwise. That's just, um, well, we don't have I, I think that that'll be the one concession I make to the debate moderators. Sometimes we have to uh, make sure that we're, we're not going fully into the depth. But I do appreciate the depth that you've brought tonight and, and the time that you've been very gracious with. Uh, Anam Rahman, Georgetown University adjunct professor, also an immigration attorney, and uh, with the Asylum Seeker Assistance Project board member with them, and they do work in the MV area. Thank you so much for your time, for all the time you've spent through this entire this 29-year debate that we had <laughs> here. My bedtime. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And I want to get into, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, we're here, by the way, you're hearing that. It's not just because I brought like my, my, my dog in to clap. It's because we are here at Local 16, which has been kind enough, generous enough to give us a little bit of space to come in here, set up a table, put down my, my stupid gingham tablecloth, and say, let's have this little political conversation from time to time. I want to talk more about this conversation because for people in the room who don't know who the hell I am and for people who are listening to this maybe for the first time, I want to explain that. But um, the, the, the guest that we just said goodbye to uh, and, and the one that I'm still looking at because she's still right here in the room with us, she made a really good point and I want to amplify it. I want to make sure we reinforce this point, which is the debate moderators over and over again tonight we're trying to create these wedge issues, and that was the decriminalization point, but it was also a number of other things. It was, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? The framing of these topics was infuriating to me, and I imagine to you as well, especially if you're someone who is looking at this from the left of center side of, of, of the political conversation, because you're thinking, this is, I, I get it. You're trying to appeal to the voter who's not necessarily going to be voting in a Democratic primary, but who's still willing to sit through an hour and a half of you know, torturous uh, cable news coverage. But that's not what you're trying to differentiate when you've got 10 uh, people on the stage and you actually want to have a conversation. It's not about, uh, you know, is your gun policy lesser or is it going to be incentivizing people to come in? That's insane. It's offensive. It's, it, it, it ruins any realistic uh, conversation that we could potentially have, and I think it really does a disservice to the debate. The last few points I want to make, and then we're going to wrap up here, I thought the people who really uh, availed themselves well I thought Senator Warren, uh, Senator Sanders, typically they're already in the center of the debate stage. They're there for a reason because they're doing well in terms of the polls. I did think that even though some of his answers were very mealy-mouthed, I thought uh, Pete Buttigieg cut through the noise in a way that I thought was interesting. I, I did not like his answers, but I thought his answers were clear. Um, Marianne Williamson is insane. Uh, I don't understand why she's still there. Uh, there were some people, they have gone now. They, they, they're gone now. They were actually cheering. Uh, you may have heard it throughout the recording tonight. Every time she came up, I was laughing along with them because, but this is, can Democrats really put someone out who would be essentially the crazy pants equivalent of Donald Trump? I don't know if that's true. I really hope that that's not true. Tim Ryan, I thought, very gratefully, did not get a lot of airtime. John Delaney on the other side of the, uh, of the, the spectrum, aside from looking like a, a toe for most of the evening, really just got far too much. There was, uh, there was a, a moment where I kept saying to myself, why are they going to this former congressman from Maryland? Like, what value is he adding? And it's certainly not uh, something that was, was valuable. Governor Bullock, who was not in the first debate, got a lot more airtime tonight. I, I, again, I don't know what he necessarily added other than maybe some differentiation to the, the more left of center. 
I think uh, O'Rourke and Hickenlooper availed themselves reasonably well. Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, reasonably well. But the, the center of the pack, I think there would be no surprises tonight. Senators Warren and Sanders did reasonably well and cut through the noise. I think Senator Sanders had some of the best lines of the night, saying, I wrote the damn bill. Senator Warren actually managing to control both the room, the moderators, and her opponents throughout the evening. I thought there was a real sense of, you know, can this be someone who can stand up to Donald Trump on a debate stage in a year from now? Gosh, I hope so. Um, and and I, it's frustrating. I thought this was more valuable than the last one at NBC. Infinitely more valuable. The, the, the question time, there was almost half an hour on health care alone. Then we saw 10 minutes on guns, 10 minutes on immigration, uh, there was maybe 20 minutes on basically the scene from uh, uh, Batman Begins where the Joker throws down the pool cue and it's like, you know, attack each other. Try, more of these wedge issues. And I get it. They make good TV, but I don't know why we needed that much of it. And then there was like this round robin for the last half hour or so that's really stretched out to more like 45 minutes. I, I don't know if it's good necessarily, but it seemed a lot more valuable to me than we got from, from NBC. I do think the big question is, what are you going to remember after tonight? What is going to be the point that sticks? And I think, I, I think it's going to be back to the two people that, that availed themselves, Senator Warren, Senator Sanders. And there's going to be a lot of chance tomorrow night as Senator, uh, Senator uh, Harris, former Vice President Biden, and the others who are on the debate stage make references back to the conversation we were having here tonight. Let me just end by saying a little bit of why this conversation I, I hope is valuable both to you and, and to me and to everyone else who's listening. For seven years, I was a White House reporter. Before that, and this is going to sound much like a closing argument or a closing statement from one of these ridiculous candidates, I grew up in a restaurant family. And yeah, this is actually sounding way too much like one of these douchey candidate uh, final closing statements. Please forgive me. The reason I mention that is because we had a value of hospitality. And when we talk about the, the immigration question, when we talk about voting rights, when we talk about who belongs in America, I think we have to reinforce that central value of hospitality. That's why I invite people to my table. That's why I hope that you will invite people to yours. The conversation is at the table. I'm Jared Rizzi, uh, and I'm so gratified that you'll spend a little bit of ear time with me. There is... Uh, a, a Patreon for this as well. We've already gotten a very nice response from people. Um, find that uh, on, on Patreon and my Twitter, at Jared Rizzi. Thanks so much to everyone who has been a part of this conversation tonight, including our guests. Earlier in the program, we had uh, Chris Melody Fields, the executive director of BISC, the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. And you heard uh, who came back just for a few moments after the debate, Anam Rahman, who's a Georgetown law professor and an immigration attorney. She was able to spend some uh, a lot of time with us. Thanks both to them as well. I also want to thank the team who has been making this conversation possible uh, for us here in the room. Uh, uh, David Ross is the producer. He was an MC earlier in the evening uh, for about half a second before he was uh, too drunk to stand up uh, for most of the rest of the evening. And then Alana Morris is our associate. <laughs> Slow clap for David Ross. <laughs> Alana Morris is our assistant, assistant producer and has been enormously uh, valuable through the entire time that she's been with us as well. Our opening entertainer was the hilarious Shelly Kim. Uh, the amazing staff here at Local 16, including Vince, Paul, Natalie working tonight, 
Aman Ayub, who, for letting us into his space for this family meeting. Uh, he treats this restaurant as a place uh, of, of great hospitality, and we have tried to reinforce that value as well. My lovely wife, for all of her incredible support, and all of you for braving the heat of Washington, D.C. for this ridiculous evening. I know that if you came into this room and weren't expecting me, you had absolutely no reason to stay or be polite, and I thank you for that. Uh, my name, again, is Jared Rizzi. This is At the Table. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody.